Welcome to Close Up. I'm Kelly Carter, and man, do I love a TV lover. Aaron Sorkin, I feel it's safe to say, is a TV lover. I mean, only a TV lover would make a film about TV, am I right? Aaron wrote and directed this season's Oscar-nominated Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz biopic, Being the Ricardos, and honestly, this film feels exactly like a Sorkin TV show. God is plain. Are you being funny right now? I'm Lucille Ball, and I'm being funny, you'll know. We get his signature style, lots of juicy, snappy, robust dialogue that's really well thought out, and that's something that he mastered in his iconic TV shows. So what you've just described is impossible. Only if you think an overwhelming majority of Americans are preternaturally stupid. I do. I don't. And if you let me, I can prove it. But if somehow you missed the West Wing or the newsroom, get thee to a streaming platform ASAP and enjoy that marathon. And while you're there, maybe you want to watch The Trial of the Chicago 7. That was Sorkin's last film before being the Ricardos. And to me, it also is an excellent example of what Aaron really does well as a writer and director in the cinema space. And that film also happens to be a really great background look at the 1969 trial of seven men who were charged with conspiracy, which came from countercultural protests. Do you have contempt for your government? I'll tell you, Mr. Schultz, it's nothing compared to the contempt my government has for me. We've heard testimony. But let's stay on task because we're here to talk about Sorkin's latest film, Being the Ricardos, and how he brought Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem along for the ride. Lucy, you need to tell me right here and now what the hell is going on. You don't want to talk to my wife like that, amigo. Or what, Des, you're gonna beat me up? Oh, she will. So both Javier and Nicole are up for Academy Awards for their roles in this film, which really is this behind the scenes roller coaster ride look at a controversial week in the lives of America's sweethearts. At the time, Lucille Ball was TV's biggest star and she was accused of being a communist at a really bad time to be accused of being a communist. And honestly, it could have all ended right then and there. Insert all of the shock and all of the horror. Grandpa Fred raised me from when I was age four. He cared about the little guy. He cared about workers' rights. It was a tribute to him. And to say that I checked Grandpa the wrong- Grandpa Fred, Grandpa Fred was wrong, Lucy. Believe me, you checked the wrong box. In my conversation with Aaron Sorkin, we talk about his approach to that film as a writer and a director. And this is actually the third time that he's done both. And we really dive deep into his creative process and the choices that he makes. And as always, you'll go inside of my group chat. Today, I'm joined by senior culture critic for Anscape, Soraya McDonald, and award-winning poet, essayist, and cultural critic, Kimberly Reyes, to talk about Sorkin and his controversial choice to cast that Aussie Nicole Kidman as Lucille Ball. And you know we're gonna get into that Jane Campion controversy from the Critics' Choice Awards. But first, here's my conversation with Aaron Sorkin. When it comes to to storytelling, what do you look for with regard to what might work best in TV series versus what might work best in a film? Like, how is that differentiated um, as far as you're concerned from the creative's perspective? The first TV series I wrote was Sports Night. Um, and uh, I had never thought about writing a TV series before. But uh, what happened was uh, I had this idea in my mind of a story set backstage at an ESPN type place. 
And I told my agent, the problem is I, I just don't have, I just don't have a two hour story uh, in mind. The, the stories I'm thinking of are shorter uh, than that. And he said, it sounds like you're thinking of a TV series. Uh, so that's how Sportsline happened. And um, I guess that's how it's, it's the difference between having a story to tell and having a place and a situation from which you can tell a lot of stories. So what accounted for the shift for you? Because you gave us four iconic TV series back to back, and then you transitioned into writing films and, and, and directing films. And you obviously were always writing films um, in advance of becoming um, a director. But but what accounted for the shift of you fully moving into the, the cinematic space? You know, I don't want to close the door on series television. Uh, uh, I do like it. Uh, it's the very difficult part about series television is this. When you're writing a movie, when you're writing a play, uh, and suddenly it's not going well, you've driven into a snowbank, and, and you need to step back from it uh, for a few days, for a week, uh, whatever it takes. You can call the producer, you can call the studio, you can call whoever is waiting for it, and say, I know I said I was going to deliver the first draft in June, but it'll probably be more like September. Um, and they may not be thrilled about it, but that, that's the way it goes. They get it. With television, you have hard deadlines. You have air dates to meet, which means that you have to write even when you're not writing well. Um, even when you know you're not writing well, you have to push through it and write anyway. Uh, and then you've got to take that script that you know you didn't write well and you've got to put it on a table uh, for the cast and crew and then you have to point a camera at it and that's a tough pill to swallow that's why when uh i have an idea for possibly for a tv series or if i'm presented with an opportunity to do a tv series that is a big uh a commitment for me um yeah. not that it's a small commitment committing to a movie uh but at least when I commit to a movie, you know, when I say, yes, I'll write this movie about Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, mm. it's not like I have the whole thing in my head by any means. I, I barely have any of it in my head, but I have enough to feel like, go ahead, keep walking forward in the dark with a flashlight. As you go forward, you'll see more uh, and more. Um, and when you're done with that story, you don't have to write episode two. Um, you get to tell one story uh in two hours yeah you know i started off our conversation talking about the space that you worked in television for a reason because of course right now everyone is enjoying being the ricardos which i mean is a story about perhaps um one of the greatest television entertainers of all time lucille ball what's going on for dinner lucy doesn't the table look beautiful tonight lucy who is it some people <laughs> lucy I'm imagining that the TV geek inside of you really jumped at writing and directing the story. Am I right about that, Aaron? What? Yes, um, because <laughs> the uh, not and it didn't really have anything to do with I Love Lucy's place in our cultural history, mm -hmm. uh, which, of course, is iconic. I just got this idea for a structure, have the whole thing take place during one production week of I Love Lucy, Monday table read to, uh, to Friday audience taping. And that was uh, that was a, a comfortable place for for me to write in a familiar place. I, I know that world. Uh, I'm excited by that world. 
and uh, I like making backstage look beautiful of you know work light and uh and ladders and that kind of thing yeah are nominations or awards ever a measuring stick of success for you and if not what is i first of all i mean there's listen there's everybody has their own uh internal gauge uh when uh, a studio bets on me uh i want them to win uh when actors trust me with their careers i i want them to win when uh, a crew works their ass off uh, for me, uh, I want them to be happy that they did. So the the, the typical metrics for measuring success, uh, uh, like award nominations and things, aren't unimportant. Yeah, I think that's a really uh, a really fair point that you that you brought out. I mean, that said. Nicole Kidman, I mean, she is transformative in this role. I mean, certainly as a writer and and as a director, you're giving us a version of Lucille Ball that a lot of us didn't know existed before, but she really cuts across, I think, and just really shines in this project. Talk to me about when you knew Nicole Kidman nailed this and even go back before, what made Nicole Kidman write for Lucille Ball? I mean, I, I don't know how people felt about the choice, but- when I saw the film, I was like, okay, I get it. Right. Um, it, there's nothing I like more than talking about Nicole in this part. Uh, okay, so the, the casting process. Uh, remember, I wasn't casting Lucy Ricardo. Uh, I was casting Lucille Ball. Good morning, I'm Lucille Ball. I sure know that, Lucy. I wanted to make sure because you haven't been here in a while. Is it because you've been going through puberty? I look young, yes, but I went through it a long time ago, and I haven't been here because I've been directing at Danny Thomas. Danny does jokes. Few people do it better. I do physical comedy. I've seen every episode of the show. So have 60 million other people. There are shards of Lucy Ricardo uh, throughout the movie, uh, but one of the one of the points of the film uh, is that when people think of Lucille Ball, uh, they think of Lucy Ricardo just like when people think of uh, Charlie Chaplin, they think of the little tramp. Charlie Chaplin is nothing like a little tramp, doesn't look like a little tramp. Uh, and Lucille Ball and Lucy Ricardo are, are, are two different people. And, and I, I, I wanted Lucille Ball to be someone unfamiliar to the audience. Uh, yeah. I wanted Lucy Ricardo to be familiar, but Lucille Ball to be this different person. Um, uh, so for the part, what I needed uh, was a world-class dramatic actress with a dry sense of humor, kind of a dry, withering sense of humor, who can who can handle language. And uh, Nicole did all that spectacularly. Uh, I have to tell you, it was an incredibly brave thing uh, for her to do. Uh, Nicole Kidman is an actress who can easily rest on her laurels. Um, I assume that the reason she doesn't is that she must be afraid of heights. Uh, (laughs) Here's a role that she knew was going to be very challenging. Uh, she wasn't going to have an easy day uh, on the shoot. It was going to be very challenging where she is playing an iconic person about whom people feel very, very strongly. Uh, and uh, I, I think I might be the one person left who doesn't have any social media accounts. But even if you don't have social media accounts, it's you, you can become aware of what a few dozen people are talking about on Twitter the media will make it seem like those few dozen people are millions uh, of people. 
uh, and the those few dozen people on Twitter, they were very unhappy uh, with the casting of Nicole Kidman. They were, however, at a disadvantage. I was at an advantage since I'd read the script and knew what the movie was about. Uh, <laughs> right. uh, they didn't, and uh, I think that uh, Nicole <laughs> certainly makes a very solid case for herself, uh, as does Javier and uh, Nina and J.K. and Tony Hale, Alia Shawkat, and Jake Lacey. I mean, it's a hell of a cast. We just have to acknowledge that, you know, going into it and in so much so. And, and it's such a rich cast and really just kind of um, a depth of talent that just about everyone that you cast in this film is is being talked about for for these, uh, you know, awards that we use to kind of spotlight yeah. really great talent. What does that what does that do for you as a director to know that, you know, you have had this very strong hand in, in shaping a story that is getting that kind of attention and, and that you have put the actors in place. That it, well, it, makes, me, it makes me feel great, not yeah. uh, because I think that uh, none, none of those actors need me to get them nominated for awards. Um, they've done it plenty of times uh, on their own. But it feels great to know that they're also proud of, uh, of what we all did together. So what types of stories excite you? I don't think that I, uh, that it's a type of story, that it's a genre, that it's a theme. Uh, I, I think that if I stumble across something, whether it's, you know, an, an idea in my head or a magazine article that I've read or a real life person, um, if I stumble across something and feel like I have a chance a chance to write a good screenplay. Mm. That's what I want to do. Mm. Uh, I'm not someone who has, you know, a, a, an idea a minute. Um, uh, I don't have a million of them. Uh, I, I wish I could get them faster. I wish I could have more of them. Um, so when I come across one, well, I think I have a chance to write a good screenplay, like a batter waiting for his pitch. Mm. Um, uh, that's what will make me, uh, put my arms around it. Do you as a director always have to write the projects that you direct? Is that is that really the most satisfying for you? Right now, today, uh, I mean, it could be different tomorrow, but right now, today, I, I, I just can't see uh, directing something I didn't write. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, for me, d directing it is just a, a, a continuation of uh, of writing it, kind of like writing a piece of music and then conducting it. When do you know as a writer that the story is done? Like how long did you work on being the Ricardos? How long did you work on the trial of the Chicago seven? Um, great examples because uh, for me, a, a screenplay isn't finished. It's confiscated. Uh, <laughs> I keep writing until someone says pencils down. Uh, uh, we've, we've got to go. We've got to roll film. Okay. Um, so for Chicago seven, that was 15 years. Wow, uh, really? Yeah. Um, uh, and for uh, being the Ricardos, it was in 2015 that Todd Black first started talking to me about it. And uh, I finished writing it the day before we started shooting it. Uh, but that was interrupted by shooting Chicago 7. And uh, so it, it, it wasn't a, 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 it wasn't five years that I wrote it for. Um, okay. uh, but it's, it, it's a good chunk of time. 
A lot of that time is spent climbing the walls and pacing around. It's just agony. It's miserable. Um, you're staring at that blank piece of paper and, uh, and you think you're never going to be able to write anything ever again. But then you get the intention and obstacle in place and there's you have an interesting idea for an opening scene. Uh, so you want to write that opening scene. Uh, uh, you know, the opening scene got you to the second scene and the third. Like I said, it's like walking forward in the dark uh, with a flashlight. Uh, you can only see as far ahead as the beam will go, but the further you walk, the more you can see. <laughs> I love that uh, that breakdown that you just gave. Um, are you writing for, I mean, you are, you already know that you're going to be directing the projects that you're writing, um, at least certainly these last uh, few films that you've done, but are you writing for yourself as a director or are you writing for someone else? I, uh, I've directed the last three screenplays I've written, but I still haven't written a screenplay knowing I was going to be the director of it. It's oh, come right? surprise each time. Um, with Molly's game, I turned in the first draft. We met with, I met with the producers a couple of nights later for dinner and we, we each had a short list of directors and we went through each name, but when we got to the end, uh, the producer said, but well, we think you should direct it. And they made their pitch. Uh, and, uh, I, I mean, I, I wrestled with that. I was scared of doing it for sure. Uh, but I had my reasons for wanting to be the one to direct Molly's game. Then Steven Spielberg saw Molly's game and said, you should direct Chicago seven. And then Todd Black saw Chicago seven and said, you should direct the Ricardo's. Mm. Well, since Aaron Sorkin, the writer, takes a really long time uh, to work on a project uh, in, until you said the teacher says pencils down, does that mean that you've already written your next great screenplay? Wow, what a nice way to ask that question. <laughs> For the first time in a very long time, I don't know what I'm doing next. Um, right. in, in the past, I mean, for the past many years, uh, I've always known Okay, there's this thing looming out there uh, that I've committed to uh, that I have to start when I'm done with this thing that I'm doing. But like I said, for the first time in a long time, I don't know what I'm doing next. Mm. That's got to be a fun space to be in, though, uh, all things considered. It, it, it's, a, it's a tiny bit of a fun space to be in, but also that space is occupied by, huh, is that because I'm never going to have another idea? Oh, no. <laughs> have, have I run out of ideas? You can't do that to yourself at all. Um, Aaron Sorkin, thank you so much for taking time out to chat with me today. I thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. I feel like I've been there before. <laughs> Where Aaron Sorkin is right now. Uh, happy, but also slightly terrified. On the other side of the break, I sit down with my reporter friends to talk about those projects that Sorkin arduously spends years and years on how we thought he did with being the Ricardos, and what else is getting our attention in Hollywood. We're back, and of course, I want to bring in my friends like I always do this time. Today, I'm joined by senior culture critic for Anscape, Soraya McDonald. Soraya, thanks so much for doing this today. Thank you for having me, Kelly. Of course. I'm also joined today by award-winning poet, essayist, and cultural critic, Kimberly Reyes. Thanks so much, Kimberly, for stopping by. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. You know, I want to start here. I want to talk about Aaron's career. And I want to hear about your thoughts and feelings about being the Ricardos and Nicole Kidman's performance, Nicole Kidman's casting. 
And you know we're going to get into the one thing that everybody is talking about on these social media streets from the Critics' Choice Awards. But let's start with Aaron. You know, what did you guys think of being the Ricardos? Kimberly, let's start with you. Um, well, when you were saying what you wanted to talk about as far as casting, I was like, <laughs> accent, accent. <laughs> like, can we talk about the accent? <laughs> let's do the show, yeah? Let's just forget about this for a half hour. Yeah, let's do the show. Jim, let's go. I know that it's a casting choice that he's really proud of, um, and she's obviously been nominated for awards, but I, I'm a little bit over her being cast in every woman of a certain age film mm. um, role. And I find, especially when you're dealing with someone like Lucille Ball, I mean, like it's already distracting because you have a certain voice in your head and then you have Nicole Kidman's voice, which is this weird set like in between accent. And it just, <laughs> I just would have felt so much better if it was like an unknown actress, you know what I mean? Because then it's mm. like, I'm not, associating all that is Nicole Kidman now meshed with all that is Lucille Ball. I just would have liked a clean slate. I feel like Soraya's agreeing with you. Soraya, you didn't you didn't care for Nicole Kidman's casting in this one? No. Um <laughs> I I just I don't I don't think it works. I think it takes too much work to sort of integrate her visually mm. and sonically in this film. Like just the I think the makeup, like whatever it was that they did to her face. Um, and Manola Dargis kind of wrote about this in the New York Times in her review. She says it looks like Kidman is wearing some unfortunate prosthetics um, oh to make her cheeks whiter and, and to alter her brow. Mm. Um, but the thing is, is that I don't think it's a very good makeup job because instead of sort of just blending into like the rest of what you see on screen you're just constantly distracted by that mm. um you know and sometimes like i am very much you know usually the person who is arguing for looking at you know an an actor's interpretation of a person as opposed to you know this kind of copy pasta let's make them line up as close as possible you know, and when we're talking about accents, you know, I think Kate Blanchett is someone who's also an Australian actress like Nicole, who has demonstrated, I think, a sort of effortlessness with her voice work that isn't quite there for Kidman, at least as Lucille Ball. Mm. Um, I think she would have made an interesting casting choice, perhaps. You know, I've seen other people suggest Deborah Messing or yeah. Kristen Wiig. I too saw the Deborah Messing stuff mostly because of her work on Will and Grace and people always naturally mm -hmm. compared her yeah. to, to Lucille Ball when she was on broadcast television. But but Kim, who did you think would probably be like a better casting choice? So I I mean, definitely Deborah Messing. But like I, like I said, I, I actually would have preferred maybe a more unknown actress. You know what I mean? I, I feel like mm. there's again, there's like such a small pool of like the women of a certain age that are cast. And I don't see why we can't broaden that. And especially for a role yeah. where it's like, you have such a strong face, such a strong personality attached to it. I just think someone with no baggage would have worked out better. And I'm going to add one more name, which mm. is Tilda Swinton. Oh, um, just because that's interesting. Okay. She, she has an acuity for characters. Mm. Um, and I think it would have been interesting to to see her approach to Luther Ball, frankly. Um, yeah. Like, I th it obviously would have been a challenge for her. But, you know, I mean, 
this is a woman who's been in the French Dispatch and also, you know, worked with Bong Joon-ho. I think mm. she probably could have done it. <laughs> oh, God. I'm alone here in my in my love for Nicole Kim in this role. I just thought she was so great in this role. And I don't know. Like, I just... And maybe because I was watching it thinking about all of the conversation people had about her casting. And I was like, you know what? This this Aussie did uh, did a pretty good job. But also, I think that, you know, the entire story was really interesting. It was something that a lot of us weren't necessarily wholly aware of because we weren't actually existing at the time that this happened. What did you guys think about Aaron as a writer and as a director on this particular film? Um, did he, did he do a good job, Kim? Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of feel like he always does, you know, like my, my problem was, like I said, the casting mm. mainly, but I thought, um, his power of the use of dialogue, um, and pacing definitely came through in this film. I mean, that's what he's good at and that's what he brought. So. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I was gonna say that dialogue is an Aaron Sorkin yes. staple. Uh, Soraya, were you a fan of the film as a whole? How many stars did you end up giving this film? three out of five maybe like it's not terrible but it's not virtuosic um Mm. i think when it works it really works and then but when it doesn't it can feel very sort of clunky Mm. um or overly idealized Mm. uh with something like this right where you know you have this backdrop of the red scare you can kind of see the historical movements that are taking place, you know, and shaping these people's lives along with them going to work, them being on set, the relationships that they have with the people they work with. Yeah. That I think works very well, right? Like that is, it's clearly something that he's good at and, um, and likes to revisit, you know, over and over again, whether we're talking about sports night or studio 60 on the sunset strip you know, that sort of nerdy approach to the background of movie making or TV making that we don't necessarily see. I want to switch topics a little bit. Um, I came back from a flight late Sunday night, well past midnight, and I was really tired and it had absolutely nothing to do with being on a really late flight. It had everything to do (laughs) with me hearing the acceptance speech that Jane Campion gave at the Critics' Choice Awards on Sunday night. Now, for those who are unfamiliar, Jane Campion is the director of The Power of the Dog, which you probably have noticed is amassing many award collections this season. Well done. She's, you know, walking in a trend of female directors who are... um, winning against all odds. You know, a lot of times they're going up against primarily male directors and usually it's only male directors being nominated and we certainly tip our hat to to the progress that's happening there. But why on God's green earth do you get up on that acceptance stage once again and hit us with a teach bit (laughs) of what I like to call sorority racism? You know, Serena and Venus, you are such marvels. However, you do not play against the guys. <laughs> like I have to. <laughs> Sorority racism, of course, is that casual racism where, and they're laughing because I don't even need to explain to you guys on this panel, but for those listening, it is where you don't even recognize, A, your privilege or the things that you're saying 
and how harmful and hurtful they can be. And I don't understand why it keeps happening that black women are not looked at as women. And also when you say something like Venus and Serena Williams are marvels, but they don't play against the guys like I have to, that lets me know that you haven't even looked at Wikipedia, much less a match, much less heard an interview of someone like Serena Williams saying, if I were a man, I would have been considered a goat that's greatest of all time many years ago. It is a fight that most certainly is happening in their careers, just like in your career, Jane Campion. I want to bring in Kimberly and Soraya because I want to hear your thoughts on this too. Maybe I'm maybe I'm overstating the case. Uh, oh, okay, so I'm going to talk fast because I have a lot of thoughts. Um, one, it's, <laughs> it's like, there are many sections of Wikipedia that she missed. One, they play mixed doubles. So first of all, all the they time. do play men. Uh, second, yeah. um, the the literally they single-handedly changed the pay rate for women in the game. They spent yes. years in litigation and courts to to fight the, fa the the sexism of tennis. So I think they yeah. know a little bit about that. Um, a little bit. And you know what, it, honestly, because I thought about this a lot, and you know, the moment that really killed me was when they zoomed in on Venus and she was kind of making that face. And then you Her could tell- Her face was my face. Yeah, but then, but then that <laughs> uncomfortable moment where you could almost, and we've all felt it, we've all been in that room where they felt yes. the need to clap for her, even yes. though they knew yes. what she said was foul. But right. I kind of feel like, okay, so think about what happened before then. Halle Berry, like pretty much shut down the show with her speech. This is why I am so grateful to be standing and living in this moment where women are standing up and we are telling our own stories. Will Smith really like had a beautiful speech like dedicated to like sort of the black family. And to be able to show to the world the power of faith, the power of unity, the power of family. Um, and then Ariana DeBose, like, I feel like Jane changed the temperature of the room by needing to take up space that was previously being taken <laughs> up by people of color and the celebration of people yeah. of color. I don't know. Yeah. I, I feel like it's almost subconscious. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I doubt she meant any harm. I just think that there sure, is that, of course not. that need to sort of like reclaim the space. And I think that's what she yeah. did. Yeah, absolutely. Soraya, what are your thoughts? I hear some deep oh, sighing man. going on over there. So, <laughs> it's, I, oh, man. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, what you call sorority racism, you know, I think a lot of folks will also recognize this as just plain old white feminism, right? Yeah. It's like, she's not competing against them. Right, um, right. And so it just felt really unnecessarily diminishing. Yeah. Like, why is, you know, why are you doing this? And I don't want to put this all on her. That's not to say that she is not responsible for her own actions. She absolutely mm -hmm. is. But mm -hmm. I feel like this once again is evident of sort of a broader problem with the DGA specifically. Mm. Um, and that's and the Director how, Gu Director's Guild Association for people listening unfamiliar, yes. but yeah. Mm -hmm. Like you see this dynamic, I feel like over and over again with professional associations in Hollywood um, that are, you know, where there's an extreme over-indexing of white men and men generally and then, so you have a few women who are fighting to get into this boys club who are usually white. Yeah. Um, and so they they become so absorbed in having to fight this very real sexism that is yes. there. Yes. Um, 
that they develop a sort of myopia um, and there's not necessarily like a willingness to extend mm -hmm. a grace or even see their um, their non-white counterparts who are also, you know, say female or non-binary yeah. um, or trans who are facing the same issues as they are plus plus race, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. plus yeah. race. Yeah. And that was it was just so frustrating because I there's so much of Jane Campion's work that I deeply respect. Right. Um, and it's just like, uh, I know. What are you really? Doing? Well, what you are know, you doing? I mean, it, no, sorry. I was just going to quickly, uh, just a little bit in Jane's defense. Issa did point out that they were only giving out hummus for dinner. Maybe that wouldn't have happened. <laughs> like, didn't it seem like Auntie Jane was a little like having a good time? Um, and, <laughs> was she hangry? She might have. She might have been a little bit hangry. You're absolutely correct. And you know what? You know what? Maybe she will get it together by the time that Oscars uh, ceremony happens. Because I think that we might we might be seeing her get back up on stage. And I I feel like she probably has been looking at what people are saying on Twitter and what people are going to continue to say on Twitter as as that um, acceptance speech makes the rounds. Uh, Kimberly and Soraya, thank you guys so much for doing this today. That was excellent and you guys are excellent and I really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure just chatting with both of you. <laughs> so that was like group therapy. I needed that and I hope you guys enjoyed listening to that. Next time on Close Up, we've got a surprise guest, but you're going to have to just follow us and tune in in order to find out who it is. And of course, you can get Close Up wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Wednesday. Close Up is a production of ABC Audio, produced by Vika Aronson, Carrie Ann Thomas, and David Toledo, with help from Matt Wolf, Josh Cohan, Brenda Salinas Baker, Ariel Chester, Mary Pat Thompson, Elizabeth Russo, and Stacia Dashishku. Lakia Brown is our senior producer, and Liz Alessi is our executive producer. 